You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Doris Kearns Goodwin. This program originally aired in 2005. Thank you. It is a great pleasure tonight to be able to talk to you about this man with whom I have been living for the last 10 years, Abraham Lincoln. I must say, when I decided to live with him a decade ago, I was frightened on two counts. First of all, so many other people had lived with him before me, so the query was, would I be able to come up with a storyline that would be my own storyline? And it took me really two years into that 10-year process to be able to come up with the idea of looking not just at Lincoln, but about these men who surrounded him in his cabinet, all of whom were so interesting, and all of whom had been his rivals before he won the Republican nomination. But it was also scary to go back to the 19th century, because every other book I'd written had been in the 20th century, which meant that I'd had access to people who had known my characters. I could interview them about life in the White House or the families I was writing about. And of course, with Lyndon Johnson, I'd had the extraordinary privilege of knowing him in those last years of his life, when I worked with him the last year in the White House and then accompanied him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs. And in those years, he, because he was so vulnerable and so lonely, he opened up to me in ways that he never would have had I known him at the height of his power, sharing his fears, his sorrows, his worries, and fantastic stories hour after hour after hour. There was a problem with these stories I later discovered, which is that half of them weren't true, but they were great nonetheless. <laughs> In fact, I'm convinced that part of his attraction for me was that I loved listening to his tall tales, although I also worried that part of it was that I was then a young woman, and he had somewhat of a minor league Bill Clinton reputation with women, so I was constantly chattering to him about boyfriends, even when I didn't have them, and everything was working perfectly until one day he said he wanted to discuss our relationship, which sounded very ominous, especially when he took me nearby to the lake, conveniently called Lake Lyndon Johnson, and there was wine and cheese and a red check tablecloth, all the romantic trappings, and he started out, Doris, more than any other woman I have ever known, and my heart sank, fearing what was coming next, and then he said, you remind me of my mother. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty embarrassing, given what was going on in my mind. So, by going back to the 19th century, there would be no Abe Lincoln to go to a picnic by the lake with, there'd be nobody to interview who had known him or known anything about the White House, but I found something even more valuable, and that was that all the people in Lincoln's generation kept voluminous diaries and wrote hundreds, if not thousands, of letters to their families. Indeed, in the family archives of Seward, who becomes Lincoln's Secretary of State, there were 5,000 letters exchanged between the husband, wife, and children. Their daughter, Fanny, when she was 16 years old, dreamed of being a writer, pledged that she would never get married, thinking you couldn't combine the two, and kept a dazzling diary through the entire Civil War until she reached the age of 21, and then she, the war came to an end and she died of tuberculosis, but that diary lives on. Chase, who became his Secretary of the Treasury, had a diary from 20 years old till days before he died, filled with his ambitions, his ruminations, his jealousies. There's really raw emotion that goes into these diaries. And Bates, who becomes his attorney general, had a three-decade-long diary, charming diary filled about family functions as well as looking at Lincoln during the White House years. And I think what happened is when I saw that Lincoln that emerged from their tales, because they would often write their wives or their children what had Lincoln had done that day, so you got a feeling for his personality. And what surprised me the most, I think, was his vibrant personality. The pictures of him that we see are so stiff, that beard so unfortunate, but in some ways, I really began to feel in the course of this, the life force of this extraordinary man. You know, we know about his melancholy temperament, and yet he was so full of affability, good humor, warmth, and he possessed an extraordinary gift himself for storytelling that was really probably legendary during his time. In fact, it was revealed early on when he was a young lawyer. It once had been so much fun being a lawyer in those days. They would travel around as a group, the lawyers, from one county courthouse to the next. The lawyers, the judges, the bailiffs, the sheriffs, the prisoners, just they're floating around the state together, and they'd all stay in the same taverns at night. And when anyone knew that Lincoln was in town, they would come from miles around to listen to him tell stories. 
And the stories are not always what you might expect from our marble monument, which made it even more fun. For example, one of his favorite stories had to do with a guy who, decades after the Revolutionary War, just was collecting any relic he could from the war. He was obsessed with relics from the war. So he found out there was a woman who was in her 90s, but when she was 16, she had worn a particular skirt at the time of the Revolutionary War, and it was in her attic. So he went to her house and he asked her if he could see it. She was a rather practical old lady, Lincoln said, but she brings the skirt down from the attic, and he's so excited he takes it to his lips and he kisses it. So she says, stranger, you're being quite foolish. If you want to kiss something old, you better kiss my ass. It's 16 years older than that skirt. <laughs> So you can imagine if Lincoln told these stories that people would come and listen for miles around. I think early on, Lincoln was aware that he possessed unusual talents. He was burning from the chime he was a child with a desire to learn. And yet he was only able to attend school a few weeks here or a few weeks there because schools then were subscription schools requiring a payment by the family. And also Lincoln's father would lend him out to other farmers, take him out of school when he had debts to pay. So all told, Lincoln figured out he had only gone to school one year of formal schooling, but it meant that he read books in every spare moment he could find. He scoured the countryside for books. It is said that when he found a copy of King James Bible or Aesop's Fables or Shakespeare's plays, that he would be so excited he could not eat, he could not sleep. The great poet Emily Dickinson once said, there is no frigate like a book to take us lands away. And that was so true for Lincoln. Though he never would travel to Europe, he went with Shakespeare's kings to England. He traveled with Lord Byron to Spain and Portugal. It was literature that allowed him to transcend his surroundings. But there were so many losses in his early life that he was haunted by death. His mother died when he was 10 years old, and instead of giving him the comfort that he might see her again in heaven in an afterlife, she simply said to him, Abraham, I'm going away from you now, and I will never return. His father then left Abraham and his sister Sarah, who was only 12 years old, to go back to Kentucky to bring back another wife. They were alone for, for months in a region late, Lincoln later described as a region where the wild panther's scream frightened people at night. By the time the stepfather, stepmother and father came back, they were living so raggedly that they were like wild animals. And then a few years after that, his beloved sister Sarah died in childbirth. And not long after that, his first love, Anne Rutledge, died at the age of 22 years old. He had this obsession then that if you just become dust and that's the end of you, it was a haunting thought. So somewhere from his reading, he seemed to adopt an ancient Greek idea that the one way you could live on would be in the minds of others if you accomplished something worthy, if you left the people that you lived with in their lives better off because you walked amidst their ranks, if your story could be told after you die. And I'm convinced that ambition, which was much larger than an ambition for office or power, but the ambition to accomplish something worthy, became his lodestar, carrying him through so many difficulties in his early life. It carried him through his one significant depression when he was in his early 30s, when three things had happened at the same time. He had broken his engagement with Mary Todd Lincoln, not sure he was ready to be married. His greatest friend, Joshua Speed, was leaving and going back to Kentucky. And his political career seemed to be on a downward slide. His friends were so worried about him at that point that they took all knives and razors from his room, fearing he was suicidal. And Joshua Speed came to his side and said, Lincoln, you must rally or you will die. He said then, I would just as soon die, but I've not yet done anything to make anyone remember that I have lived, and that is my dream. So somehow that carried him through the Depression. He went back to work as a lawyer. He went back to the state legislature. And then he eventually had a single term in Congress, which turned out to be a quite troubled term because his maiden speech on the House floor was to question the President Polk's rationale for the Mexican-American War. He argued that the President had deceived the American public by the wrong purposes that he was stating. <laughs> but at the time, it was not, <laughs> it was, I'm not making any analogies, I'm just telling you history. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing was then also, because it was so unpopular, because the Mexican-American War was so popular, he finally had to say, but I did vote for the supplies for the soldiers. <laughs> so there's an amazing set of layers coming here. But nonetheless, he wasn't able to run for Congress again after his anti-war stance was undone. So then he tried for the Senate two times, and he failed, which might have been enough for anybody else to stay out of politics. But instead, he entered the race for the Republican nomination for the presidency in 1860, and the speeches he had given during the 1850s and his extraordinary debates with Stephen Douglas had won him a national name. 
And somehow, though, he was the darkest of the dark horses. Everybody thought Seward, the governor and senator from New York, would win. If not Seward, it would be Chase, the governor and senator from Ohio. If not Chase, the elder statesman from Missouri, Edward Bates. But somehow Lincoln was able to get that convention in Chicago where he was able to pack the hall. He was a shrewd, wonderfully canny politician. But more importantly, he was in the middle of the party where the others were on the conservative or the liberal ends. And even more importantly than that, he had made no enemies throughout his life. So his strategy was if anybody was going to drop away from one of the front runners, he would not say anything bad about anybody. They would then be willing to come to him because he had refused to attack anyone else. And that is exactly what happened. And on the third ballot, he stunned the world by winning that nomination. And then he stunned the world even further by placing each one of these rivals into his cabinet, an unprecedented act at the time, especially since each of them thought they should have been president instead of him. They were governors. They were senators. They were celebrated. They had college degrees. They had Phi Beta Kappas. And here was the single-term congressman with one year of formal schooling. But he said, these are the most strongest men in the country. The country is in peril. I need them. And as a result of putting them in his cabinet, it meant he had all different opinions right before him in the White House. It meant that he could sharpen his thinking. He would have to question what he believed. And he became a much better leader as a result of all this. Otherwise, if you have like-minded people in the cabinet, it's like having a single counselor. It's just mirroring yourself in these other people around you. But Lincoln did it the opposite way. And these guys were all so large. In fact, all of them, I think, were larger than almost anyone on our political scene today, which shows how extraordinary Abraham Lincoln was. Seward, in some ways, is my favorite of his counselors. He was a man much like Churchill, huge appetites. He loved to drink, and yet he could work all day long while he drank much of the day. He loved his Havana cigars. He loved to take snuff. He loved to play cards. He stayed up all night entertaining people. And Lincoln eventually loved to be with him. At first, Seward thought he would control Lincoln, but he soon learned that Lincoln was unlike anyone he had ever known, settled into no longer wanting the presidency, just becoming an ally and a partner of Lincoln's. And in the end, Lincoln said that there was nobody that gave him more friendship than Seward did during this period of time. He would go to Seward's house across from the White House at Lafayette Park. And they would sit together late into the night, talking of anything except the war. Lincoln would put his legs up on a chair. Seward would be drinking and smoking. They would tell stories. They loved to go to the theater together. They actually went to the theater more than 100 times during Lincoln's presidency, loving nothing more than settling into the dark of a theater like this and catapulting themselves back to Shakespeare's times. So that relationship, when it seemed like it was an irrecoverable disappointment for Seward not to win, 10,000 people had gathered outside his home in Auburn, New York, waiting to celebrate the day the Chicago Convention took place in 1860. The champagne had already been uncorked, and it looked like he'd never be able to get over that disappointment. But he not only did, but became Lincoln's closest friend. Now, almost opposite in personality to Seward was Salmon P. Chase. He thought drinking and smoking was evil. He didn't want to go to the theater. He thought novels were a waste of time. He simply spent his nights writing in his huge diary with all of his ambitions to become president. And at the same time, he would practice jokes that he could never quite deliver with ease or stories that he would never remember the end of. He wasn't the most interesting of characters, but he was very good as an abolitionist, and he had an honorable code about him. But he had this relentless drive for the presidency. Never happy, no matter what else he achieved in life, he wanted only to be president. I think in some ways that relentless drive came from an enormous void in his personal life. He had suffered so much tragedy. His first wife, whom he loved passionately, had died at the age of 22 in childbirth. And the little girl born from that lived until she was five years old, and then she too died. His second wife, whom he married at 18 years old, died at 25 years old of tuberculosis. And his third wife died in her early 30s, and he never married again. There was one daughter born from that second marriage that became the object of all of his affection, beautiful little Kate. He sent her to a boarding school in New York to train her to become the first lady of the land. She was there for 10 years learning history, languages, and culture, and, and classics so that she would be his surrogate wife in many ways and she could be by his side when his dream of being president was realized. Kate did grow up to be the most beautiful and fascinating woman of her age. Poets wrote poetry to her, sculptures sculpted her. She would be like, I think, our recent generation felt about Princess Diana. She could have married anyone. So many people were her suitors. But she loved her father so much that she married a multimillionaire who was much older than she was because I think she wanted to further her father's ambitions. And sadly, though he never did reach the presidency, though he tried so many times, 
She ended up in a terrible marriage. He was an alcoholic, he abused her, and much later she died in poverty. So that story has its own arc. And then almost opposite to the story of Chase is the story of Edward Bates. He, like Chase, was ambitious as a young man. He was in the state legislature in Missouri. He went to Congress as a young man. And however, he missed his wife, Julia, whom he loved so much that he couldn't bear being away from her. He wrote these wonderful letters to her saying, what am I doing, Julia, away from you? I can't sleep well at night. I can't eat. I have this indefinable restlessness that I can't bear feeling. I want to see my children. So in the end, he didn't want to go to Congress anymore. He was offered various cabinet posts, and he turned them down. He just couldn't bear, he said, being away from his wife. Well, he wasn't away from her very long, it turned out, since they ended up having 17 children. <laughs> so somehow they managed to get together, some of the times at any rate. <clears throat> he was a very good man, I believe. Anyways, he agreed to stand for the presidency in 1860 only because the conservatives came to him and said, you come from a border state, you were born in Virginia, maybe you can hold the North and the South together. When Lincoln won again on that third ballot, however, he decided he would accept Lincoln's wish that he become attorney general. At the time, he thought Lincoln was a rather workmanlike good man, but nothing special. By the end of Lincoln's presidency, he thought Lincoln was the greatest leader he had known and a very near perfect man. But maybe the greatest transformation in attitudes took place between Stanton, who becomes his attorney general, I mean, who becomes his secretary of war, and Lincoln. They had met as young lawyers in the 1850s. Stanton was a celebrated national lawyer at the time, and he had a huge patent case that could have made him a wealthy man. And the case was supposed to be tried in Illinois. Stanton came from Ohio. So they decided that they needed somebody of counsel in Illinois. And somebody came and interviewed Lincoln, and they made him of counsel. Lincoln was so excited. He couldn't wait to meet Stanton. He knew it was a very important case. They gave him a large retainer. And he worked all summer on his brief. But the problem was that the case was then transferred that summer back to Ohio. So they did not need Lincoln, but they neglected to tell him. So he kept working on his brief. He went to Cincinnati. And he goes right up in his typically affable way to Stanton and says, let's go up to the courthouse together. It is said that when Stanton took one look at Lincoln with his disheveled hair, a big stain on his jacket, and his trousers too high, and his socks poking out, that he said, and his long arms, you know, short, short shirt sleeves too short for his long arms, he said to his partner, um, we must get away from this long-armed ape. He will hurt our case. They never looked at the brief he had written. They didn't sit with him in the boarding house. They ignored him in the courthouse. And when Lincoln left Cincinnati, he was so saddened that he never wanted to go back to the city again, he said. And yet, almost unimaginably, six years later, when his first Secretary of War, Cameron, fails, everybody comes to him and says, Lincoln, you must appoint Stanton to the job. Yes, he's obstinate. Yes, he's stubborn. Yes, he can be mean-spirited at a time, but he's brilliant, and he'll work as hard as anybody. And Lincoln somehow was able to put that past grudge behind him and appoint him to that most important civilian post. And in the end, Stanton ended up loving Lincoln more than anyone outside of his family. They were a very odd couple. They argued constantly. Lincoln was always trying to pardon soldiers who fell asleep on checkpoint duty. I mean, he said somehow that sleep had taken them unawares. It wasn't fair to make them hang for having just fallen asleep. Stanton worried about military discipline. They argued about all sorts of things, but as I say, in the end, they became an extraordinary couple guiding the Union through the Civil War. And so what were the qualities that enabled Lincoln to really make all these men feel not only respect, but affection and really love for their chief and their captain? I think his most remarkable political qualities really rested on a series of emotional strengths that are rarely found in political life. He had what we might call today a first-rate emotional intelligence. Perhaps his most profound quality was empathy. He really could feel and think and absorb what people on all parts of the political spectrum were feeling, which meant he knew how to bridge the gaps between people. And it started when he was a young man. One of his very first speeches was to a temperance society. And the temperance advocates then were incredibly passionate. And he went before them, and again, in an unpopular stance, because they expected him to be agreeing with them, he said, you are never going to change anyone's mind if you keep denouncing drinkers as you do, as evil men who are the source of all misery in the world and in the land. If you do that, it's the nature of man who is shunned that way to retreat within himself. Denunciation leads to denunciation, he warned. The only way you're going to change anyone's mind is to penetrate their heart, and you're going to have to do that through the power of reason. And that somehow became a template for all of his later speeches. 
Much later, when he was in the 1850s as an anti-slavery orator, all the other orators at the time were castigating the Southern, Southern people as evil, unchristian people. He said they are what we would be in their situation. If they no longer had slavery, they would not introduce it. If we still had slavery in the North, we would not know what to do with it instantly. I will not blame them for not doing what I cannot do myself. And then, of course, that beautiful second inaugural, when the North is on the verge of winning the Civil War, no celebratory inaugural for him. On the contrary, he suggests that the sin of slavery was shared by both sides. Both sides read the same Bible. Both pray to the same God. Both invoked his aid against the other. Neither's prayers have been fully answered. And then the words we all remember, with malice toward none and charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wounds. So that empathy, I think, was a sterling quality. But it was combined with an ability to share credit when something good happened. For example, when Grant came to the White House, when he finally became his commander in chief in 1864, they're at a reception and everyone is crowding around Grant and people say to Lincoln, who's now left off in the corner, well, don't you feel bad that people are ignoring you? And his answer would be that the, that the path, the road to victory and the road to success is wide enough for two people to walk it abreast. And he always remembered that, giving credit to the people around him. And similarly, if something went wrong, he would shoulder responsibility for the failure. For example, when his first Secretary of War, Cameron, was about to be censured by the Congress for having let contracts to middlemen, there may be some analogy here, but I'm not meaning it, letting, letting contracts to middlemen who made off with scandalous profits for weapons that were not workable in the early days of the war, Cameron felt his political career was, was coming to a terrible end, but Lincoln then stood up for him, told the Congress not to censure him because it was his fault and the entire cabinet's fault that the problem was in the chaos of the early days of the war. They had indeed done these things when they were trying to pull an army together out of nothing. Cameron later said no one else would have been with him when he was down, but instead he said Lincoln was unlike anyone he had ever met. And he was quick to acknowledge error. He thought that the easiest thing to do when you make a mistake was to say that you had made a mistake, not waste time on personal contention, not try to square what you said today with what you might have said 20 years ago. He said, yes, I've changed my mind on things. I'd like to believe I'm smarter today than I was yesterday. <laughs> so simple, I guess, but our politicians today have so much difficulty with such things. And then when he was angry, he would write a hot letter to the person he was angry with and then put it aside, hoping his emotions would cool down. The most famous case of this is when General Meade failed to follow up with, um, with getting General Lee's army after Gettysburg's victory. Um, he wrote him a letter saying, I'm immeasurably distressed. If you had followed up, it's possible that the war might have come to an earlier end, but now it will go on and on and on. But then knowing how much that would hurt General Meade, he put the letter aside and it was found only decades later in his papers with a notation on the bottom, never sent, never signed. In all these ways, he somehow was able to repair injured feelings that might have been escalating into lasting animosity. And after every single battle was lost, they would wait in the telegraph office at night. Often he and Seward and Stanton, they'd sleep on couches waiting for the news from the battlefront. It's almost unimaginable what it must have been like to hear 10,000 people, 20,000 people have died that day. The minute he woke up the next morning, he went to visit his troops right in the field of battle. He felt he had to be by their side. He walked amidst their ranks. He visited the wounded in the hospital, knowing that somehow his confidence in them would buoy their spirits, but equally important, knowing that they would then buoy his own spirits so that he could come back and talk to the country at large and remind the country of the purpose for which this war was being fought, never more dazzlingly revealed, of course, than in the Gettysburg Address when he expressed that the purpose of the war was not even simply union, not even simply emancipation. It was to protect that experiment that the founders had created, the idea that people, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. He feared that if the South were able to achieve its desire to secede, it would show that ordinary people could not govern themselves, and that's really what he thought was the indomitable purpose for which these young men were giving their lives. But he always remembered where he came from, the White House in those days was much more the people's house than it is now. It's much more insulated, much more cocoon-like now. But in those days, you could float right in if you wanted a job, and they would have long queues waiting right in front of Lincoln's own office to go knock on the door and tell him why they needed a particular job. And Lincoln's secretary sometimes would come to him and say, Lincoln, you don't have time to deal with all these people. He said, these are my public opinion baths. I must know where people are coming from. 
And then there'd be receptions in the White House, and anybody could come to the receptions, which meant diplomats and backwoodsmen were side by side. And again, his secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, would say, Lincoln, you can't be shaking all these hands. And he said, I never should forget the popular assemblage from which I have come. I must do this. And indeed, on the day that he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he had shaken so many hands that day, they figured probably more than thousands of hands, that his own hand was shaking. And when he went back into his office after the reception to sign the proclamation, he was so worried that somehow it would look like he was hesitant and it might not be a bold streak. So he said, I've got to wait before I sign this. I'm so sure that I'm doing this. I do not want posterity to wonder if I was hesitating about this proclamation. So he waited and then he signed with a very bold hand. So in the end, I think what his qualities show, that in the hands of a truly great politician, the qualities that we normally associate with decency, things like compassion and kindness and sensitivity and empathy, are great political resources because what is politics about in the end but human relationships? And Lincoln understood that if your goal is way out there, something really important like saving the American democracy, saving that experiment, creating some worthy ambition that you can live on, then you can handle all sorts of small problems in the middle because you're dealing with something larger and you don't need to hurt people along the way. And that worked brilliantly. So you can imagine that living with this kind of companionable character as I have for this last decade, it was so hard to bring his story to an end especially hard to bring that last chapter, knowing that things had finally come together, that he was seeing the war at its end, he was seeing the Union preserved, he knew the Emancipation Proclamation had not only been passed, but more importantly, that the constitutional amendment ending slavery was on its way to the states, and yet I knew, and he didn't know, that he would only have a couple weeks to feel that serenity that came from knowing that the war had been a victory war. On that last day of his life, he invited Mary Lincoln to come and take a carriage ride with him. They had had a turbulent marriage, although I'm convinced that at the start, it was a very well-suited couple they were. When he first met her, she, was, she loved politics, she loved poetry, and she was somehow more effervescent than most of the other women he knew. And I think he understood that she could be a force in his life. And yet, when they got into the White House, somehow, everything fell apart for her. The Southerners distrusted her because she was married to him. The Northerners distrusted her because she had three, four Confederate stepbrothers in the Army. And she never found her footing. And then when their beloved son, Willie, died at 10 years old in February of 1862, she took to her bed and was forever altered. She had another little son, Tad, who she couldn't even look at anymore, who was eight years old because he reminded her of Willie, meaning that Lincoln had to become both mother and father to this little kid. But on that last day of their lives, of his life, he said to her, Mary, we've got to be happy now. We've been so sad with Willie's death. We've been so sad with all the losses in the war. We've got to start looking forward to life again. And they remembered their days in Springfield. And they remembered the hopes of where they wanted to go after the war was over. He wanted to go to California. She wanted to go to Europe. And it looked like they might have regained some of the spirit of their earlier lives, which made the ending so much sadder. That triple assassination that night was about to take place. John Wilkes Boot was set to kill Lincoln, as of course he did. Another person, a co-conspirator, was supposed to kill Andrew Johnson, but he got drunk and luckily never reached his target. The third conspirator was supposed to kill Seward, and he nearly did, leaving a bloody massacre in Seward's house although Seward much, much later recovered from a knife wound that cut his entire cheek off, and six people in his house were nearly killed at that same time. But as Lincoln died the following morning at 7.22 a.m., Stanton said the words that have echoed through the generations, now he belongs to the ages. So that dream that had powered him through his bleak childhood, that had powered him through those days when he had to educate himself, powered him through the early failures and through the early days of the Civil War, had indeed been realized his story would be told after he dies. Which brings me back in the end, in a certain sense, to the understanding that for most of us, the desire to bring our story to someone else is, is realized mostly through our family and our friends, through our children and their children in turn, not through some marble monuments in Washington. Which is why I shall always be grateful to my father for giving me that love of history when I was a little kid, for teaching me, as was said in the introduction, how to keep score so I could record for him the history of that afternoon's Brooklyn Dodger game. And when you're only six years old and he comes home every single night, and I now realize that I, in excruciating detail, recounted every single play of every inning of the game that had just taken place that afternoon, but he made me feel I was telling him a fabulous story. It brought me to that love of history, if I can keep my father's attention. And though my father died before I had my three sons, when I was still in my 20s, 
I have passed his memory, as well as my love of baseball, to my sons. Now that I've lived in Boston and the Dodgers left me and went to Los Angeles, I, of course, have become an irrational Red Sox fan. And when... And, and I must say, when I can sit with our season tickets at Fenway Park, sometimes I can imagine myself a young girl once more, with my, even though my sons are by my side. I can picture myself a young girl with my father by my side, watching the players of my youth on the grassy fields below, Roy Campanella, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, and Duke Snyder. I must say there is magic in these moments, for when I open my eyes and I see my sons in the place where my father once sat, I feel an invisible loyalty and love linking my sons to the grandfather whose face they never had a chance to see, but whose heart and soul they have come to know through all the stories I have told, which is why I shall always be grateful for this love of history, which has allowed me to spend a lifetime looking back into the past, allowing me to believe that the private people we have loved and lost in our families and the public figures we have respected in our history as Lincoln wanted to believe really can live on so long as we pledge to tell and to retell the stories of their lives. I thank you for letting me do that with you this very night. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. everybody. <laughs> well, Doris Kearns Goodwin, it's wonderful to meet you. And I was talking to Doris earlier, and uh, I finished reading all 754 pages yesterday. <laughs> I read every page, and uh, it was a marvelous book. And even though I knew how it was going to end, I spent the last 10 pages weeping inconsolably because it's so beautifully written and also just the way that you have brought us into the lives of the other characters so you not only feel the national pain of Lincoln's death but also the pain of Seward and Chase and Bates and everyone so again congratulations oh, on the I, book. I, I thank you so much that's what I care about more than anything so that means a lot. Well and let's talk about Seward, Bates, Chase, uh, Stanton as you say in the book Doris the most unusual cabinet in history this team of rivals the guys that wanted to be you know, in the spot that Lincoln was in. How shocking was it at the time when he chose this team of rivals, uh, rivals for a cabinet? You know, what was the political world saying about this? Well, I think what happened is that it really had not been done before because most of the presidents right before him had usually chosen people from their own party and people who thought exactly as they did because they thought you should have actually votes in the cabinet. Some of them would actually have majority votes, so you wanted to make sure that you knew that it was somebody like-minded. And the fact was that the Republican Party then was so young that the people in it came from former Democrats, former Whigs, former Liberty Party people, former Free Soilers. So he was not only putting in rivals to himself, they were rivals to one another. And they would argue with each other, calling each other liar, scoundrel, thief. So it was quite exciting to listen to those cabinet meetings and quite unusual. But he somehow had the, the confidence inside himself that even though he knew they thought they were better than he, he would be able to control them in the end. And what did the press say at the time as he was assembling this cabinet? Did they say, what is this rail splitter doing? The press liked to call him that a yeah, lot. Yeah, the press thought he was not only a rail splitter, they thought he was a fourth-rate lecturer who couldn't even speak good grammar. <laughs> Little did they know. And they thought that they, he would then be a figurehead and they somehow would be in control of him. They had, they had little idea. It, his external resume they didn't understand that it was more than matched by his internal qualities. Well, and as you say, uh, at the beginning, many of them did think they were smarter and better and should have been there. Um, how did Lincoln convince them time and time again that he really was in charge? Well, I think what it took actually was the first decision he had to make was to supply the troops at Fort Sumter, knowing that that might stimulate the South to respond and it might bring about a civil war. And it was such a huge anxious decision that he did go to the cabinet and ask their opinion. And actually the first time he did, all but one of the cabinet members said, no, don't do it. And yet he decided he was going to do it. And so when they saw, and then eventually they could tell what he was thinking and a few more came around to his side. 
But they saw early on that once he made up his mind, he listened to them and he, he took their advice, but he had a strength of will to make his own decisions. And time and again, they would see that as he went along. So it was a cumulative process, I think, before they realized this guy and what he was all about. Although uh, one of the things about the book that made me chuckle was uh, almost everybody in the cabinet pretty quickly came around to see that this was a very special person and an incredibly strong and intelligent person. But you do have all these great letters from Chase, uh, Chase who never quite got over the fact that he was not president. Um, and he had the audacity actually to run a sort of quiet presidential campaign while he was in the cabinet. Now it's an extraordinary thing. Here's this guy, he is the Secretary of the Treasury, and he's writing all these letters saying that Lincoln really isn't a very good leader, and he's mobilizing all the patronage of the Treasury Department in order to further his own desire to run against Lincoln in 1864. And Lincoln knows everything he's doing. I mean, Lincoln's always on top of things, but he thought as long as he's a good Treasury Secretary, I'm gonna keep him inside. But eventually then, he doesn't win, of course. Lincoln wins the nomination. The most amazing thing, though, is that after Lincoln wins the election in November of 1864, a vacancy arises in the Supreme Court for the post of Chief Justice, and all of his friends come to him and say, well, you gotta put Stanton in, you gotta put Blair in, you gotta put Bates in, these are your loyal friends. And he said, no, I'm gonna put Salmon Chase in that post. What do you mean? Don't you know the mean things he's been saying about you? He said, I know meaner things that he said about me than any of you know. And in <laughs> fact, I would rather swallow a chair than put him into that post but I would despise myself if I let my personal dislike for him get in the way. He will be the best man to protect the rights of the emancipated slaves. And as a result, he makes him Supreme Court Chief Justice, and he is right. He does protect the rights of the slaves. So, I mean, it's just an extraordinary ability, again, to forget his own personal needs for the larger goal, which will hurt, help him in the end because it protects his legacy. An, an amazing lack of pettiness. Really, it's, it's oh, astonishing. I mean, living with him, it made you want to be a better person. <laughs> I felt that way after reading the book, absolutely. I find myself thinking, okay, how would Abraham Lincoln handle this? Um, the, the, uh, the feuding, though, was a drain. I mean, you said earlier in your remarks, and you say in the book, you know, team of rivals, political genius, implying that most of the time this was a marvelous idea to get a team of rivals so that you would be challenged and so that you would have to really think out your decisions very carefully. And yet there were times where it was a drain and it was distracting him from the business of the country because these guys were at each other all the time. Oh, absolutely. And I think the worst drain, though, was McClellan. Um, this general, the first general who he put much too much trust in and left him there too long, and he was at all the cabinet members. I mean, he was playing off some of the cabinet members against each other. After one of his failures in the Peninsula Campaign, instead of accepting responsibility that he had been outgeneraled by Lee, he argued that it was all Stanton's fault because he hadn't sent him enough troops. And he says at the time, I mean, here's vicious kind of language. He said that Stanton was such a traitor that had he lived in the time of Christ, that Judas would have been a respected member of the, of the apostles in contrast to Stanton. So this is, and he's saying this to the newspapers. Can you imagine today if this is what, you know, some general is saying about Rumsfeld or Rumsfeld saying about Cheney? Um, I mean, that's the real question. Could this ever exist in today's world with these guys talking about one another, fighting each other? Some of them wouldn't even go into each other's rooms because they were so mad at each other. And at times it was draining on Lincoln, but as long as they did their jobs well, he was somehow able to say, I'll figure it out. And he took time to spend with each one, even if each one was mad at the other one, he would take the other one aside to make sure that they didn't feel that they weren't getting his attention. I mean, I can't imagine doing it, but he did. In a way, he lived up to that, that uh, nickname, Father Abraham. It's almost like they were feuding children sometimes, and he had to really deal with them exactly in that so. way. Uh, could we please talk about McClellan more? He drove me crazy in this <laughs> me book. Me too. And I just, you know, I'm reading, I'm going, you know, Abe, get rid of this guy. I mean, why did Abraham Lincoln hold on to McClellan for so long? I mean, unfortunately, one of Lincoln's strengths was loyalty, but one of his weaknesses was that he kept wanting to give everybody a second chance. And a third chance. And a, and a third fourth chance. chance and a fourth. I mean, here's this thing. McClellan did something that I could have killed him for. There's a certain moment when Lincoln goes to McClellan's house. He would just wander around to these people's houses. That was what was so much fun about that. It was so different from today. So he walks over to McClellan's house waiting for him. He's at a wedding and he comes back. And, um, and then Lincoln's still waiting and he knows he's come home but he hasn't come in to see Lincoln. And finally the servant comes in an hour later and says McClellan has gone up and gone to sleep. 
At which point, Lincoln's secretary, John Hay, goes outside and he's furious. He says, how in the world can you let him do that to you? And again, instead of taking it as a personal slight, he just said, I will hold his horse if he wins me a battle. <laughs> and somehow he then, however, never went to see McClellan again. From then on, McClellan had to see him. But I think what happened is McClellan was able to organize the troops better than any other general. They loved him. The troops loved him. But the trouble was, as Lincoln finally discovered, he said he creates a great engine out of these troops, but it's a stationary engine because he never took them into battle. <laughs> so finally he got rid of him, but I felt the same way. You know, you find yourself when you're living with these guys, just like you sound like too, he's saying, come on, Abe, get rid of him. You know, or sometimes if he and Mary were feuding, oh, stop what you're doing, um, because you do feel like they're by your side, and if only they could listen to you, things would be better. Well, McClellan wasn't the only bad general. No, there were a train of bad generals before he finally reached Grant, and thank God he found Grant. You know, the amazing thing is that when he finally did find Grant and knew that he had, then he could slip away from the military strategy that he'd been involved in up until that point, and then somebody came to him after he had been nominated for the um, second time in 1864 from the Republicans. The Democratic nomination hadn't taken place yet, and they said, there's no question you're going to win. The only way you could lose is if Grant takes Richmond, and then he'll be nominated by the Democrats, and he'll probably become president. So Lincoln thought for a moment. He said, I feel like you're a doctor, and you've told me that I have a fatal disease. Well, I don't particularly want to die, but if I'm going to die, that's exactly the disease I want to die from. Let Grant take Richmond, and I'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, again, it's just the ability to think so quickly on his feet and to be able to deal with these things. You outlined for us, Doris, uh, the other characters. Again, Chase, Bates, Stanton, Seward. I was struck by... Um, even though they were fighting all the time, how close these people were, too. They had dinner parties together. They were always going to each other's houses. And also how the public treated them as a team. There is scene after scene in this book of something big happening, usually a, a great uh, battle being lost or won. And these crowds form in D.C., and they go to Lincoln and try and hear him give a speech, and, or they'll, then they'll go to Seward's house to try and hear more, and then they'll go to Stanton's house and try and hear more, so the public really sees them as a team. Oh, that's really true, you know, especially they had a custom in that time, if a battle were won, of serenading these people. They would actually go and start singing outside their house and then call for them to come to the window to give a speech, and you're absolutely right, they would go from one to the other to the other, and it's true, even though they did feud in the cabinet, they were somehow able, at the end of the day, to go to each other's houses for dinner. They just seem to have much more time than we do. I mean, here's, it's incredible. They're running the Civil War during the day. They have these dinner parties at night. They're writing eight-page letters to their wives and their children. What do we do with our time? <laughs> somehow, we're too distracted, I think. And the dinner parties will often be great conversations that would go on. And, you know, Seward would have these 17-course dinner parties in the 1850s, where it was said that he invited Southerners and Northerners together. And after the 17 courses, and the five different wines, they would be hugging each other. They said, mellow with the grape and the purple of the wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that I enjoyed about this book was not only the description of the characters in this team of rivals, but it was the first time that I had learned about the role that women played in this story. Um, Kate Chase, uh, Mary Lincoln, Frances Seward. How did these women shape uh, the men in this cabinet and Abraham Lincoln, and how were they instrumental in their success? You know, I think one of the problems with male historians, if I may, in the 19th century when they would write about presidents, they wouldn't even mention the name sometime of the president's wife, as if the wife and family had nothing to do with what they became. And each one of these women were so interesting, very different on the spectrum. Frances Seward, for example, was a brilliant intellectual woman who in many ways was the core of passion for her husband. She was more of an abolitionist than he, more of an idealist. Their relationship reminded me somewhat of Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. She would tell him what he should do. He was concerned with what he could do, but he adored her. But she suffered from what a lot of women did, I think, in the 19th century when you were brilliant and no place to exercise your talents. She had what they called the vapors, which I think was really depression and she sometimes couldn't get out of her bed for weeks at a time with an unexplained illness. But then incredibly what happens is that at the end, what, when, when her husband is almost killed in that assassination attack, and her son is rendered unconscious by a revolver being hit into his head so much that his brain comes out, and he doesn't come to for days, she later wrote that she, and he finally does come through, she later wrote that she never believed in vicarious suffering, but somehow watching these two men that she loved so much, her husband and her son, 
um, almost dying. She felt she had taken their illness onto herself and that she was going to die. And six weeks later, inexplicably, she died. So that story was just really something. And then Kate Chase, as I was saying, she gave up so much for her father. But she was a real force. She was his campaign manager. She was a political personality. And the two of them were really a team together, so that she was very unusual at that time. And had Julia Bates not been so much in love with Edward Bates, he might have ended up being president of the United States. So that it just, I find, it's not only that they're important in shaping their lives, but if you're going to try and create for the reader a feeling that they know these characters, you got to live with them every day. And they live with these people every day, with their wives and their children. So that's why I love finding, and that's why those sources of those letters were so fantastic to find. We should talk about Mary Lincoln. Um, you know, in talking with friends about how I was reading this book and preparing to interview with uh, interview you, I got several comments from people. Well, wasn't Mary Lincoln kind of crazy? Yeah, that's the public impression. It is of the her. public impression. I mean, and I think the reason for that impression is we know, or many people do know, that at the end of Mary Lincoln's life, her oldest son Robert did commit her to an asylum. What happened is that she had somewhat of a mercurial temperament. It was said even when she was young that she was either in the cellar or the attic, that she was up or down. So it may be that she had some manic depressiveness. But when you think about it, as I said earlier, early on, I'm not sure that it manifested itself other than a somewhat fiery temperament. And there's this wonderful story when they first met that um, he, he went up to her and he watched her with all of her bows sitting with her sisters in the mansion in Springfield where a whole bunch of people were at a party. And he went up to her and he said, Mary, I want to dance with you in the very worst way. And then Mary laughingly said, he certainly did. <laughs> I can just picture the awkwardness of six foot four Lincoln stepping on her feet. And she was like five feet tall. But think about what happens to her. She has four children. One of them dies at three years old earlier before the White House years. Little Willie dies at 10 years old in the middle of the White House. She watches her husband being killed by her side, and little Tad dies at 18 years old. So she's left with this one son, and no wonder that her instability manifested itself. It seemed to manifest itself by shopping expeditions, which is a typically manic thing, I suppose. At one point, she bought 300 gloves at one sitting, which it's hard to imagine that you could use very, very quickly. But he was afraid that she needed protection from herself. She was running around at night outside in her nightgown. This is Robert. Later this on. is Robert thinking this. And however, once she got into the asylum, she got a woman lawyer and she talked herself out. And she was soon out and she went back to the house on the hill where she had met Lincoln, where she died. Mm -hmm. So the ending of her life is so sad, but I think we've, we've put that shadow too much onto the early life as if she wasn't a fiery force in the early days. And I think she really was. And she had a lot to say to Lincoln about the politics. She was furious with Chase. I don't even... Oh, didn't she absolutely. just avoid a, a wedding or something? She oh, didn't yeah, she go wouldn't to... go to Kate Chase's wedding. When Kate got married in the middle of the war, it was the biggest social event of the decade, and she deliberately snubbed it. Also, when Frances Seward came at one point to the White House, and she was supposed to meet with her, she deliberately refused to do so because she thought that Lincoln spent too much time with Seward, and she was jealous. So, I mean, there were certainly difficulties in that marriage, um, but, it's, but she, she, one of the things she did after Willie died and she finally sort of came out of the depression, she went to visit the wounded in the hospital and she was fabulous with that. She unfortunately didn't allow reporters to follow her because we might have had a whole different understanding of her because those hospitals were terrible places. I mean, the smell must have been almost unbearable. There would be arms and legs in buckets outside and she sat by the side of the soldiers and she'd write letters to their families and she was never phased by the difficulties and the diseases that went through there. So that she deserves a lot of credit for. Well, and as you said, uh, death was a constant in these people's lives, even before the war. The war uh, made it worse, tens and tens and thousands of people dying. Uh, and I was struck again by how much this war affected everybody. I mean, everybody had someone in the war. How different is that to today? Oh, I think that's one of the biggest differences with the war in Iraq and the Civil War or World War II, because with both World War II and the Civil War, almost every family knew somebody who was fighting in the war, and the home fronts were mobilized so that you felt a sense of connection to those people who were fighting the war for you. And I think one of the hardest things now is because there's only a certain number of people that are fighting our war for us in Iraq, um, there's a sense in which the rest of the country gets interested or not interested. And I read those people who die in the black border of the newspapers that, in the days, and it just seems so lonely for their families. I mean, we've had a particular 
connection to all this because our youngest son, Joey, who graduated from Harvard College in history and literature in, in June of 01 and was set to go to law school, instead, after September 11th, joined the Army for what will amount to a four-year commitment. He went to basic training, officer's candidate school, and then he was sent, as soon as he finished, to Iraq, um, where he was a platoon um, leader in a slum sector of Baghdad for a year. And it was a very tough assignment, and obviously, like all the parents, we were worried about it. But there was no connection with anybody else we knew. It wasn't like people that we knew in Concord or we, people we knew in Harvard had sent their sons or daughters over there. So I can just imagine how much harder it is to bear the losses right now when the people who die are not feeling that sense, which makes you wonder if we're going to have these kind of wars. You've got to have a purpose for that war. You've got to make sure the country understands it. I think one of the most difficult things that's happening right now, as people are beginning to question the weapons for mass destruction, as they're beginning to question whether this war should have been fought, there still are people dying over there. And a president's greatest responsibility is to make sure that the purposes for which he is sending people are agreed to by the country. And if he fails to do that, it's a huge failure. But, but just on a, ha on a happier note, when Joey came back from Iraq, the Red Sox allowed him to throw out the first ball at Fenway Park, and he was so excited. But all week long, he said he was more nervous than he'd been the entire time in Iraq. And I kept saying to him, Joey, it doesn't matter. You're on, he also had his ACL operated on. I said, you're on crutches. They're going to see, bronze. he won a bronze star for Valor. They're going to see bronze star. They're going to see Iraq just back. Mom, you don't understand. It's a guy thing. I have to hit the plate. And so all week, he's practicing. And somehow, miraculously, he threw a strike. And then, boy, did he celebrate. <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm going to turn now, Doris, to some of our questions from the audience, and I've been going through them, and we have some terrific ones, Great. ones that I want to ask, too. Here's one uh, to start with. Was Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation a political tool to prevent England uh, from coming to the aid of the Confederacy or a sincere philosophical conviction? And as you answer that, if you could just add in there uh, the evolution of Lincoln's thinking on the slavery question. I think it was all those things at once. I mean, I think what happened is that he was afraid before he got into the presidency that the president would not have any power to issue an Emancipation Proclamation because slavery was protected in the states by the Constitution. But once he got into office and once the war was going on and once it became clear to him that the slaves were being used by the Southerners to their great advantage. They were digging trenches, they were serving as cooks, they were protecting the home fronts of the soldiers so that they could then come to the war. He realized that if he could emancipate the slaves, that it would take that power away from the South, but more importantly, it would bring a balance to the North, but even more importantly, it would allow him under his commander-in-chief powers as a war necessity to say that he had a legal right to issue this Emancipation Proclamation. At the same time as the questioner rightly suggests, he knew that England and France were often on the verge of recognizing the Confederacy because they had all sorts of cotton relationships and merchant relationships with them. But the masses in England in particular were so pro-emancipation that if he were to inject that into the war cause, it would be much harder for the leaders to then go on the side of the Confederacy. So I think it was a political move, but I also think he'd been wanting to do it all along. It was just that he had to wait until it was the right moment. He had said later if he'd issued it six weeks, six months earlier, then the border states would have been lost and he would have lost the war, and, and then the slavery would have remained in the South. If he'd waited any longer, he might have lost England and France. So I think it was political, it was moral, and it was very personal at the same time. What was his thinking about slavery at the beginning of his political career, and how did that evolve? From the book, it seems like it didn't change radically, but it evolved. Well, I think the question is not only slavery's evolution, but his feelings about equality for the blacks and the whites together evolving. I mean, he always was against slavery. The question was simply earlier on that he thought the only thing that they could do in Congress was to prevent slavery from getting to the Western territories, because if they could do that, then maybe slavery would die out in the South. But they never thought, until this whole moment that I just described, that they had any power to do anything about it where it existed in the South, because the Constitution protected it. Um, but what's even more interesting is that when he was in the debates with Stephen Douglas 
At the time, he was asked by Douglas, do you really want black equality? Do you want blacks and whites to marry one another? He was, he was begged, you know, egged on. And if he had ever said yes, he would never have had a single vote, probably, in Illinois, given the white prejudice that was so prevalent in the country at the time. What he did say in a kind of brooding way was um, that he thought that he wished, perhaps, that things were different, but he feared that in America it would be a long time before blacks and whites could be equal. And so he wasn't sure blacks could serve on juries. He wasn't sure they could vote because the country would not support it. And those statements have sometimes been taken out of context to say that he was a racist. If indeed they are racist, which in some ways they are, it's because the entire North felt the same way at that time. And he was simply echoing that sentiment. But then what happened is when he gets into the presidency, he gets very friendly with Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass is a fabulous man in his own right. And Douglass said when he first met Lincoln, it was the first great man he ever talked to who didn't evince any condescension as a matter of color. And the two become so close that it begins to change Lincoln's attitudes about the possibilities for blacks and whites. And the last speech he gives talks about, the, right before John Wilkes Booth kills him, talks about the need perhaps for blacks to vote. And Wilkes Booth hears that, and that's what motivates him to say, I've got to kill him right away. And he was right in worrying that America wasn't ready for these things. It took 100 years more for blacks to get the right to vote and for segregation to be ended in the South. So I think there was an evolution in Lincoln that would have been far ahead of where the country was at, even though it may not seem far ahead for us today, looking back. Well, and here's another question about Frederick Douglass. Um, this person says, is it true Abraham Lincoln had a meeting with Frederick Douglass? Well, yes, it is. Um, talk a little bit more about also the proposed deportation of freed slaves to South America. Well, what happened is, early on, Lincoln was part of a group of people who, even some abolitionists, who thought that the best thing to do for the blacks once they were freed would be to let them go back to the Africa from which they had been taken or to South America where they could start on a plane of equality, unlike here where it was thought they would never be able to be equal. But again, so he, he advocated that voluntarily. I mean, he never was arguing for it as a, as a coercive measure. He thought that would be a good thing and that black Americans might want to do that. But through his friendship with Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass came to clearly tell him, um, this is our homeland, and we don't want to go anywhere else. We have to make it or break it here in America. And he dropped his ideas for colonization, in part as a result of that friendship. And then at the very end, it's an amazing thing, Frederick Douglass gave a speech after Lincoln died in which he said, from the point of view of his point of view as a, an agitator, Lincoln was slow in moving toward emancipation, toward black equality. But from the point of view of his being president of all the people, he was radical, because he then understood that he had to bring people along and shape public opinion, which he had done. So their relationship is a fabulous relationship. Here's another question about Lincoln, the man, and uh, how he became what he was. How did Lincoln acquire such an impressive command of the English language with so little formal education. It really is amazing. It, it is amazing. It makes you wonder whether or not we have our students read far too many things instead of just reading a few of the great books. I mean, here is Lincoln absorbing poetry, absorbing the Bible, absorbing Shakespeare, and somehow the cadences of all that great literature gets into his soul, and he becomes our best writer in the presidency. And I sometimes think about the scattered kind of education that we have today where people have to read thousands of different things and, and never maybe penetrate as deeply. He would memorize huge passages from poetry and he could quote entire Shakespeare plays at times and somehow it got into him in a way and there's a depth of his learning, I guess is what I'm trying to say, which probably was better than the width of most other people's learning. Seward and Chase, they would quote you know, classics in the speeches they gave. Lincoln would talk in a very folksy way and yet persuade people much better because he could understand what they were coming from and most people couldn't relate to, you know, to Joan of Arc or to Troy or the things that the other guys were talking about. Here's a question I like. Uh, what were Lincoln's greatest insecurities? Well, I think his greatest insecurity, interestingly, was um, that he did feel bad that he hadn't had better education. And, and he wished that he had. And when he came upon educated people, he knew they had been lucky. And it wasn't that he was happy having been grown up in that circumstance. And the hardest thing for him as a child was not simply that he couldn't find books, but his father and most people in the area in which he grew up 
thought that reading was a sign of laziness, that it was indolent, because you're supposed to be working with your hands in the fields. So his father would often take his books away from him, would be upset when he was entertaining his friends in the field by telling them one of his little stories. And so there was always this shadowy sense, I think, that he had to do his learning in secret. And then when he looked at Seward and Chase, who had gone to Dartmouth and Union College, I think there was a real sense of, of yearning and, and, and hauntedness that he himself could not have had that. And sometimes wondering whether or not he'd ever measure up because he didn't have that full education. But I think as time went by, it became clear that he could. And yet he didn't have a chip on his shoulder about it. No, he didn't have a chip on his shoulder. It was just a, a yearning, a desire. I mean, it's interesting. Lyndon Johnson, I think, all, sometimes had a chip on his shoulder. He would talk so much about having gone to Southwest State Teachers College compared to Kennedy and Harvard. And, um, and actually, Johnson was as brilliant as any of those other. I mean, he may have had his own flaws with the war in Vietnam, but as a person, he was brilliant. But he, he did have that chip on his shoulder because he hadn't got the credential. No, Lincoln didn't carry it as a chip. It was just a desire. Well, speaking of uh, the other presidents that you have profiled, Doris, how does Abraham Lincoln stack up for you just as a writer, as a project, as a, as a person to study? Well, you know, what happens when you do each one of these things, you do feel loyal to each one as you're doing them, so that even when I finished Roosevelt, and I loved working on Roosevelt. I mean, embarrassingly, each of these books takes so long. It took me longer to write the book about Franklin and Eleanor in World War II than it took World War II to be fought. And now it's taken me twice as long to do Lincoln as it took the Civil War. So you do get connected. And when I had to move all of my um, Roosevelt books out of my study to make room for Lincoln, I felt like I was betraying Roosevelt somehow. And now that I'm so close to Lincoln, I can't even think of what I'm going to do next because I'll feel like somehow I'm leaving Lincoln behind. So I think what happens, I mean, people have asked me, who do you like the best? I mean, who's the best of the presidents? And I guess I'd have to say, if I had to choose, that the difference between Lincoln and all the others is that he was both a good and a great man. I think Roosevelt was a great man, certainly a great president. Lyndon Johnson, domestically, I think, was a great president. Um, but I'm not sure these other people were good people in the sense that it's very rare in public life for those qualities, as I said earlier, to shine because sometimes you're just taken advantage of or the system doesn't allow you to, to be kind and be sensitive and put grudges behind you. But to live in that presence of him was the, was the happiest professional time I think I've had. I, I miss him already. It's, it's crazy, but I do. The death of Lincoln obviously was a huge uh, blow for the North, and yet you say in the book also that it was a huge, huge blow for the South. How come? Oh, I think that had Lincoln lived, he would have been the best friend that the South would have had because he wanted to bring the South back into the Union as gently as possible so long as the rights of the emancipated slaves were protected, whereas there were people on the radical side of the Republican coalition who would have been hard for him to contend with because they wanted to punish the Southern leaders. I mean, again, Lincoln told a story to illustrate that. They wanted to hang Jefferson Davis and any of the Confederate leaders. And what Lincoln really wanted was to just have them leave the country to escape unbeknownst to him. But he couldn't say that publicly. So the way he told Sherman what he wanted to happen was he illustrated it by a story. He said there was a man who had taken a pledge, an abstinent pledge to stop drinking, but he was very grumpy about it. And he went to a friend's house. And the friends offered him lemonade, but he could see how sad the guy was. So he said, well, what if I put in a little brandy, unbeknownst to you, into your lemonade? And then the man smiled. That would be great. And Sherman caught immediately that the whole idea was, yes, let them escape, unbeknownst to us. And Lincoln would, would have, I think, made it much more possible, I think, for the Southerners to come back into the Union, holding the Republican coalition together. Maybe Reconstruction would have been hard. And, and maybe he died at the right moment to retain that iconic stature. But I think we would have been much better off if he'd, had he lived. Even if he had diminished his, his reputation, maybe the outcroppings that we still have between the South and the North might have been diminished. I was wondering how much you do that as you work on this book and think about what happened after Lincoln's death. How much do you spend thinking what would have happened in that second term? Would it have gone better? Would it have had that problem that second terms often have? Uh, once they were no longer focused on winning that war, would they have kind of started squabbling more loudly and more publicly? It is, it is probably so. I mean, he had a hard time keeping that coalition together in the war. Peace would have been much harder. 
However, he would have had the victory of the war behind him. I mean, he was a war president who had won this incredible war, and he had much more serenity, and he had much more confidence in his abilities. So I think he was going into that second term a much stronger man than he was in the first term. And when you think about what he had accomplished by keeping that coalition together in the first term, I think he could have done it. But you do spend time wondering what would have happened to Seward had he stayed, what would have happened to Chase. I mean, it's just, it, uh, you, you, you feel like you're leaving these people in midstream, and there's a part of me that does want to look ahead and figure out, is there something I can do following this? Maybe Grant would be what I could look at, just so I can stay with my guys for a while, because I don't want to <laughs> let them go. <laughs> Seward, of course, gets us Alaska, so he's got Alaska's folly. Seward's folly gets Alaska. Stanton ends up in the cabinet, and he's the cause of Andrew Johnson's impeachment, because he's on the radical side, and he's trying to impose his will on Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson fires him from the cabinet as war secretary, and the Congress then is about to impeach, um, impeach Andrew Johnson for the firing of Stanton. That was one of the things that was brought to bear. So that's part of the impeachment trial. Chase is the chief justice that sits on the impeachment trial. So these guys do go on, and I would like to know some more about them, but, I just, but there'll be no Lincoln to go through that part with, so that's too hard. <laughs> So if you were to pick a, a next project, maybe staying with the guys for a while. Well, maybe staying with the 19th century. I mean, it was, as I say, the, the letters are so fantastic. I mean, even Stanton, when his first wife died, he, um, he wrote a, a, like a 100-page letter to his two-year-old son because he was afraid the two-year-old son would never know the mother who had died. And, and there's just some, I mean, you hear the whole romance, how much he loved this mother, and what their days were like. You're just not going to get that now. 200 years from now, when people try to do our years, they'll have much more stuff to deal with, but they won't have that raw emotion that these letters have. The letters even shed light on one of the questions that I often get asked, was Lincoln gay? And the reason that is now part of the conversation today is because um, he slept in the same bed with Joshua Speed, his great friend, for three years, and he wrote flowery letters, which have been recovered, to Joshua Speed. But because I have all my guys, I can see how common both of those things were. They all slept in the same beds. They didn't have the same privacy then that we do. When Lincoln was on the circuit, sometimes three lawyers would sleep in the same bed together. The only one who got his own bed was the judge, David Davis, because he weighed more than 300 pounds, <laughs> so nobody else could be in the bed. But then listen to the letters that these other guys wrote to each other. When Seward was in the state legislature, an older state senator wrote to him and said, um, I feel positively womanish about you. When I'm away from you, I just want to be with you. And then Seward writes back, I feel a rapturous joy to know you feel that way about me. But no one suggested either one of them were gay. And in fact, the following year, their friendship broke up, not because of that, but because the other guy tried to seduce Seward's wife. <laughs> and Seward found out about it. <laughs> and then when Chase and Stanton were young men, they'd both lost their wives. And Stanton writes a letter to Chase saying, ever since our, our pleasant intercourse last summer, no one is in my mind more waking or sleeping. I dream of being with you. I want to hold you by the hand and sit by the fire and tell you I love you. But no one suggested they were gay. So my, my own conclusion is that, and not mine, historians have looked back at this time, and male friendships were really intense. Men and women couldn't be friendly then because everything was chaperoned. So men, men, and women, women developed these really intense, even romantic friendships but it's only our preoccupation with sex that assumes that they're all in bed with one another, literally, rather than just sharing a bed. <laughs> I guess that, you know what I mean. <laughs> well, thank you, Doris. And there's other people that I want to thank also. Executive producer and live stage presentation director, Patricia Lynch, New Hampshire Public Radio president and general manager, Betsy Gardella, New Hampshire Public Radio executive producer, Keith Shields, musical director, Bob Lord, house band, Dreadnought, stage manager, Jana Morris, lighting designer Bruce Morris, technical director Quentin Stockwell, live sound Dean Clegg from SRC Sound, and recording engineers Ian Sylvia and Eric Ruder. And again, a huge thank you very much to our special guest, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Thank oh, you're you. so welcome. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs>